0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I've got a uh, a
1: cock and ball development for you, Lorraine. You know we're actually talking to listeners, don't you? This is not just you and me having a chat on the phone. Tell me about the cock and ball development. Want it to know? Well, maybe, yeah, go on. Well, it's my embroidery, isn't it? Oh, your embroidery. Yes. Yeah, not ailments of Neil. No, no, no. No, no,
2: no. So the Tottenham Hotspur. 1980s
1: embroidery. Embroidery, cock and ball on a
2: cushion. Anyway, Neil came back the other Saturday after a walk with the dog with with this. I've got a prop here. Can you see what it is?
1: Look at that. That's a cock on a ball.
2: Yes, water bottle. It's a Tottenham Hotspur
1: water bottle.
2: And do you know what Neil does? Every Saturday evening, he goes around the common, which is across the road, and picks up all the water bottles (laughs) that have been left by the small children doing their sports. I I mean, I think it's... I like to think it's kind of litter picking, but I think it's more like him actually sort of scavenging water bottles it's and hiding them. It's hoarding. He's hoarding it's, water bottles. Yes. Um, but he was very pleased with this
1: because obviously it's, it's our cock on a ball once again. It, there is a message from the universe, Trish. Uh,
0: yeah, what is um, the
1: message? I don't How know. interpret? It, it, I don't know because
2: I would never watch Tottenham play football anymore. But um we'll work it out. We'll work yeah. it out one of these Report days. Report back. If anybody has uh, lost a Tottenham Hotspur <laughs> water bottle, one's with common in recent weeks. Just drop us a line on the old uh, email. Hello, postcards from midlife, and I'll get it back to you. Hello, hello. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Trish Halpin
1: and I'm Lorraine Candy, and we're on a mission to help you make the most of your magnificent midlife. We'll be tackling everything from mind and body wellness to HRT and your sex drive. Trish and I are here to help you have a stylish second act and answer all your midlife questions on fashion, beauty, careers, relationships, family, and as always the challenges and joys of parenting teens. Before we get
2: into the delights of this week's episode, I wanted to continue the footballing theme, <sighs> as I've had several moments of ball-related joy. Not just my free water bottle. over but the you're a
1: walking Doublonton,
2: Trish. <laughs> well, can we start with the England women, yes. the European champions?
1: Trouts in the usa who are the world champions i love that friday we night. can and everyone watching the it the whole house oh, yeah. watching it and mabel my little mabel just been just been picked for the football team at school. very excited we've just got some shin pads oh. for her i mean it's amazing isn't it all these yeah. girls that would never have had that chance a whole huge part of society that we were completely excluded from well playing yeah. in now exactly. we are well, exactly. That's why I ended up embroidering. <laughs>
2: I playing I could be the England manager by now if that hadn't been the case I'm thinking I think you might what be you a bit think? too scary to be the England yes. manager you're not going to embroider any more cushions no. are you no, no no I think that hobby lived and died in the 1980s but um <laughs> I've also been very distracted by Arsenal and England legend Tony mm. Adams on Strictly on the dance floor mm. I mean I can't stop thinking <laughs> of that full Monty samba sort of strip with the lovely Katia shimmying and
1: all around him i mean what's wrong with me can you are you thinking good things or bad things or I just, worried things what are no, you nothing things?
2: nothing inappropriate just awe and amazement at the whole thing and wonder and joy 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 is what it
1: is think? yes i mean it, he is 55 bringing joy. year old tony adams bringing you joy joy those shorts were quite exciting weren't they yes the yes the shorts. there's something i don't think he's him. going to make it all the way through Though Trish, I, I really don't. No, I don't know. I don't know, he could be a surprise
2: because people are just enjoying it so much. All that galumping and harumphing, you know, across the his, <laughs> his
1: arms just wave all over the place. He's got he was just at one point his arms were just oh, flailing about, but he's dealing with it all so brilliantly. But anyway, finding Not that joy, wouldn't be any better, would oh, we? No, yeah. but finding it is joyous. joy,
2: and yeah. we do find joy that is what midlife is all
1: about, isn't it? Finding joy, living with joy. We've been talking about. Well, and I shall be talking about it a little bit later as well with my, my little book review. It is our philosophy on postcards. Once you've navigated the messy middle bit, got sorted your perimenopause out, it just opens up all the doors to a whole new world, a kind of transformative place Mm. now listen to Louise from our Facebook group I was so excited to read this it's so Mm -hmm. lovely she says I'm not posting this to brag in any way shape or form brag away Louise it's brilliant what Mm. you're about to say but I thought it might give someone somewhere hope or a lift to read a positive post about HRT and perimenopause and what can be achieved I've been trying to get my HRT right for about 18 months and finally I think I've cracked it after some persistence and a lot of patience Monday Listen, I completed a trek to Everest Base Camp. (gasps) (laughs) Woohoo! My God. I made it to the other side of Regent's Park, Louise, so you are my hero, which was extremely hard and amazing all at the same time, but it's something I would never have thought I'd achieved 12 months ago with the symptoms I was suffering. So keep persevering, ladies. Find the right solution for your body and you, and you won't believe what you can achieve. Well, we
2: couldn't have put it better ourselves, could we? I mean, that really is awesome from Louise. So anyone struggling with their perimenopause or approaching those years and wanting to be fully informed, now is the time to do it. And we are, in fact, in Menopause Awareness Month right now, aren't we? And there is a lot of helpful information out there, lots and lots of it, which is just brilliant. But it's important to find the right information,
1: isn't it? Yes, I think it is. You've really got to follow the right people. Mm look for the right people on um, Instagram, social media and on their websites and on the news, actually. There's a lot of news about it, so there's a lot of information. One of our guests on the show, hormone specialist, Dr. Anise Mukherjee, made the point recently on Instagram that there's actually a worrying lot of disinformation and misinformation out there. So let's make sure we follow the credible sources. So follow some of the guests we've had on the show, look back through our 110 or so episodes. We've had Anise, Dr. Anise on the show, Dr. Louise Newsom we've had on the show, Dr. Paula Briggs we've had on the show and Dame Leslie Regan, Professor Dame Leslie Regan. You can listen to all of those interviews we did with them. Just Google them and they will pop up they should be on your podcast provider and if you subscribe they will be automatically in your system Mm. and dame leslie um, she's the professor of obstetrics
2: and gynaecology at imperial college london and she's a women's health ambassador for the government-led women's health strategy um, and is also chair of one of our favorite women's health charities Wellbeing of women and they have made some really really helpful videos about menopause which are worth watching so we definitely recommend you to, to have a look at those there's one about recognizing menopause which is a conversation between penny lancaster and carolyn harris mp
1: also a previous guest of the show penny lancaster Rod Stewart's other half. Mm -hmm. I'm saying he's one of our favourite menopause warriors at the Mm -hmm. moment. They've also done one on race and the menopause, something we don't talk about um, enough with lovely Dr. Nigat Aref. It's actually called Race and the Menopause, this video, and former Olympian Michelle Griffith-Robinson and influencer Mira Bogal. And also early menopause, which is really important as well, and that's been done with broadcaster Zoe Hardman and her sister Catherine. You can find those videos on the Wellbeing of Women website and we will post the links on our socials
2: too. And Dane Leslie, we are very excited to say, will be one of the many fabulous speakers and guests at Postcards from Midlife Live, which is taking place in London next year on the 19th and 20th of May. Have you all got your tickets, lovely listeners? Um, If not, they are on sale now at the website postcardsfrommidlifelive.com. And if you book now, there are all sorts of
1: early bird perks and VIP happenings, such as meeting us. <laughs> is that a perk? I don't know. <laughs> It might be for some people seeing us out in the world I mean, it's difficult to know whether that's a perk uh, it's probably more of a perk for us to meet the women who are walking to Everest and doing all their brilliant yes. things in midlife thank you so much for letting us know what's going on and we really really appreciate the community that's sprung up around the podcast and we know you want to meet each other too because I think in real life meetings could happen oh. um, there's going to be lots of talks interviews workshops fashion beauty workshops and you know really helpful things we're going to look at careers aren't we dating uh-huh. Mm-hmm. finance, everything. Any questions you've got to ask, we will be able to get them answered at Postcards from Midlife Life. There's also my favourite one, mm-hmm. Trish. The Midlife Playroom. Mm. This is where I am going to unleash... <laughs> No, I mean... Unleash hell. Thickets, no. yeah, unleash hell. <laughs> mm. um, you're going to unleash your creative potential. There's going to be mm. all sorts of um, lessons and making and doing and drawing in the playroom. Everything from writing, crafting, floral design, anything creative. Because often women in midlife find their creative side, don't they?
2: Yes. So maybe I should be uh, brushing up on my embroidery skills. No, No, stop it. Right. Okay. You'll also get to meet some of your favourite authors as we know how important books and reading are to women in midlife, which leads me nicely into this week's episode because it's our series seven book club special. And our guest is none other than Pulitzer Prize winning writer, Jennifer Egan, who wrote one of the best books, I think, of the last de- decade yes. and A Visit from the Goon Squad. And she'll be here to talk about her latest book, The Candy House. Is that based on your goings on in your house, Lorraine?
1: No, <laughs> it was President Obama's favourite book. I don't think he would want to read about the domestic shenanigans <gasps> of a woman going up and downstairs yeah. wondering where her glasses and car keys are. Fair enough. Anyway, before we meet Jennifer, we're going to be unloading our own favourite books, aren't we? Our new books, books that have taken us out of our comfort zone, um, things that are sparking our minds right now. Are you ready to turn the page? Do you see what I did there, Trish? That was I like know. a proper I audio broadcast I Shall I do some rustling, pretending that we're... Here we are. Turning the page. Russell, The producer's got her Russell. head in her hands. Mm, yeah. How can she work with these amateurs much longer? Anyway, on to book club.
2: Are your reading glasses cleaned, de-smeared and at the ready?
1: Don't need reading glasses, we've talked about this. I'm short-sighted and what's happened is it's corrected itself. So now I can read close up, but I still can't see far away. Okay. well,
2: for all the rest of us, it's uh, it's time to stick our noses in a book or two for our autumnal selections. Lorraine, what treats do you have in store for us? Oh, I've got a lovely
1: one, a lovely one. Mm. Um, This is a bit out of my comfort zone, Trish, because you know how I feel about death and dying and how upset I get. Yes, a bit obsessed, yes, yes. It was tipped into the death mask. Anyway, I've got Richard E. Grant's hardback memoir, A Pocket Full of Happiness. It's really about his last year with his wife. Mm. Well, I think eight months because she was diagnosed with lung cancer and she died in September 2021. And she died. He was holding her hand when oh. she died. It's really sad and it it is quite a powerful read. And I think you would have to be really able to deal with it at the time, but it's a a really proper look at how you live with someone when you know time is really, really Mm -hmm. short. It's so, so moving. They have a daughter, Olivia, and a stepson, Tom. Um, They've been together over 35 years. Um, She was 71, he is 64. And it's called a pocket full of happiness because when she was dying, she said, you'll be all right. All you need to do is find a pocket full of happiness in every oh. day oh. and he, that's what he does it's oh. a really it's just so moving he has found a way of finding a pocket full of happiness in every day which mm-hmm. is you know something we all try to do but under that intense pressure yes yes he's managed to do it he says he says whenever i waver towards the canyon of grief her instructions ping across my cranium and i endeavor to try and find a pocket full of happiness wherever i can it's become a welcome habit my daily bread and buffer and i just think that's a lovely way oh. to approach life and every time i see it by the bed i think oh i'm going to find a pocket full of happiness in something mm-hmm. today so i highly recommend oh that. that's it's a really good one it's it. a love
2: story it's about grieving it's about self-help um and he's yes. um i've read his biography it's very fun he's a very good writer as well yes so, so and she was good. called
1: joan washington she was yes. a voice coach and they met just uh before he did with now Mm. 1986 what a story
2: i've chosen a bit of a theme for my three i'm gonna choose an old favorite so a writer that i just love um somebody new to me somebody i haven't read before and then something that's out of my comfort zone so i'll start with my old favorite which is kate atkinson her new book shrines of gaiety which i am so excited to get my hands on because i literally i mean she could just write i don't know any old thing and i just love it she's just so <laughs> she's just so clever isn't she and so creative, and her characters are just really quirky and interesting, but very human, and What's she does history about, so well. Okay. So, this one is about the Soho underworld in the years between Ooh. the wars. It's set in 1926. And it's about this woman called Nellie Coker, who is a sort of matriarch and nightclub proprietor. And she's just done a six month stretch in Holloway. And she's so she's obviously this, this mad yeah. character. And she actually, um Kate Atkinson, Atkinson was actually inspired by somebody who did this in real life called kate merrick um, who was a real life queen of clubs and um, she kind of elevated her children so this character has six children but there's also a murder there's a bit of a detective going on you know very Paige very page turner funny observant um little sort of nuggets of wisdom and um yes she
1: is just can do no wrong in my eyes i have to say yeah, I haven't read many Kate Atkinson, oh, so I might start. Oh, Where would I start? Yes. Would this be the one to start on? Well, this what's quite interesting about
2: Kate is that she didn't write her first book until she was forty-three. It's called Behind the Scenes at the Museum, That's and right, she started yeah. writing. She won a short story competition in Woman's Own magazine. Where would we be without magazines? We wouldn't have the no. wonderful Kate Atkinson. So I would say behind the scenes at the museum, just work your way through. very, very good.
1: Through. Right, number two for you. You're going to like this, Trish. Mm-hmm. There is, on the banks of the Thames, a really, really rare small animal. Well, animal. <laughs> mollusk. How right. do I know about I it? I don't know what where this is going and how anyway. it relates to a book. Right, go on. It's <laughs> it's called, you're going to like this, the German hairy snail. <laughs> Right. There's hardly any in the world there's only t- two species right Chiswick, you may find one okay on the bank of the thames now how do i know this because my second book is london in the wild which is a really delightful delightful book um it's from the london wildlife trust and the forward is by chris packham and it's just about the amazing diversity of nature in the city so Mm -hmm. you think of the nature have to go outside think of the wild have to go outside london oh no there's loads of stuff there's the london tube mouse it tells you where to see bluebells you can even see seals in the Thames, mm. because in 1957, the Thames was biologically dead. It was declared biologically oh, yes. dead. It was yes. so filthy. Mm. But it really just talks about all the places you can go in London and what you can see there, how you can look out for your parks, look after them, a bit mm-hmm. of eco stuff as well, all the community spaces, the wetlands, the woodlands, the heaths. So I've got it. and Mabel and I are going to start looking for some of the things oh, in it. I'm going to nice. go down to Chiswick, look for the German hairy snail. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take a picture for you. <laughs> it just and was it was so surprising it was you see, then you'll you'll be um,
2: auditioning for a job on Spring Watch and Autumn Watch which you poo-poo oh, it whenever gosh. I go on about that but now look at you look it at could you converting be, it could be on to Spring the ways Watch. of Spring Watch that's what's going on here excited he said. excited yes.
1: about that what that's have you good. got for me
2: what's well I'm keeping on fiction here and this is something new for me so it's an author who she obviously is not new she's called Camilla Shamsi um, she actually won the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2018 with her book Home Fire and um, she's a Pakistani-born writer. She lives here in London and uh, she's very, very clever, very, very good at writing and this particular book, this new book is about these two friends called Zara and Mariam who were kind of brought up in Karachi, very, very wealthy from successful families and then it's about their friendship through the 80s and 90s and then they come to London and have these high-powered careers and it's the worlds they revolve around But I think it's just really fascinating because it is about the nature of how friendships last and evolve over time. There's a lot going on. There's sort of stuff coming back to haunt them. But anyway, she's just a writer. I've sort of read a few bits about her and I thought, right, I just need to explore and go and find somebody new and just not keep doing all my old favourites all the time.
1: I like the fact you're branching out, Trish. Mm. That's good. It's good, isn't it? It's I've got mute. something here that branches so far out, Trish. <laughs> Are we on trees now? Branches, no. Tr- no? Okay. No, this is a this. I I haven't done uh, fiction for us this time. No. I've only done actual real life oh, books. This okay. is called, and you will like it, The Devil You Know Encounters in Forensic Psychiatry. It's by Dr. Gwen Adshead and Eileen Horn. and she is a therapist. To mm-hmm. some of Britain's leading criminals, serial killers, arsonists, stalkers—okay, um, um, yes, okay. Yeah, it's extraordinary. So it's not a book I would normally pick up because I'm not normally drawn to that kind of thing. But it's—it's it's just, I would say it's in the top five most extraordinary books I've ever read. It completely mm-hmm. moved me. It's about well, she calls it radical empathy. It's about finding out why we do what we do and. Just the kind of how cruel we can be, but why we would be that cruel and what neurology would lead to that and what um, emotional trauma tragedy. And, and also it's about how the system cares for people who are broken, who've mm-hmm. come from a really broken place. And they don't, they don't really care. It just, it was so, so it's really. So she takes each criminal who is in prison. She worked in Broadmoor um, for a while. It's getting and darker she, and darker and darker. Yeah, and she has sessions with them where she talks through <laughs> doesn't really talk about the crime specifically mm. and she talks through where they come from, how they've got to the place they are and, and how their brain works and it you learn how people mm. do what they do and why they do what they do and you learn, well you also learn that really apart from war hardly anyone is ever killed or hurt by a stranger, mm-hmm. it's always someone you know. Someone so you're always yeah. in that cycle of people around you so it's the kind of interconnectedness Of us all, and the closeness of it all to us. It's really well written, it's very scientific, and you know, being a therapist for the most hated people mm. is an extraordinary concept. So it also talks about how she deals with it herself, physically. Right. She looks at something in And psychology. is she kind of, she's a midlife woman, is she? She, she is, yeah. yeah. And she's very interesting on her work before she had children, her work after she had mm-hmm. children. She uh, interviews a stalker, actually, which I found absolutely fascinating, who was a very similar woman to her, a midlife woman going mm. through the thing, all midlife women go through. She talks about her own blind spots, when you deal with people, which really made me think about my own blind spots when mm. I deal with people psychologically. And she talked about this thing called transference, which is really common in psychology and, and therapy, where you the energy between two people who are discussing something incredibly personal and, and, and a really strong feeling can sometimes switch. So if her yeah. patient is feeling sleepy, she will begin to feel sleepy. Okay. It's a concept I'd really never yeah. thought about or, yeah. or knew existed. And actually, I've talked to friends of mine who are therapists and they're saying, yeah, yeah we're, they're taught it they're taught how to deal with it yeah because it can derail you I'm not sure this is one for me I'm feeling it's a bit might be a bit dark I'm
2: I'm probably interested in her story but I'm just not sure
1: I would not dark because it is her story it's right okay it's it's her weaving through I I learned it's unmissable I learned so much from it about human nature who we are who we think we are and and it isn't gory and it isn't dark and it isn't upsetting because as you know I'm not really drawn to that kind of thing it's just about (laughs) you have been in this month's book club <laughs> well i have a little bit yeah it's yeah. just about how to be yes. more human and how okay. to have empathy for other humans oh, right. i Do you like
2: it okay okay well i've got one i know you're not going to like because it's called feline is it feline yes it's called she and her cat and it's by I'm mm. um, uh, um, apologies i'm going to pronounce this wrong Malkoto shinkai and naruki nagakawa she and her cat Yes, it's about cats. The reason it's out of my comfort zone, obviously not the cat thing, Shinkai is a anime filmmaker and manga comics. So I would never look at something, you know, this like this, but uh, I just was quite intrigued by the the idea of um, him writing these little short stories about uh, women and their cats cat <laughs> you know, cats. and it's all set on the outskirts of Tokyo and this kind of neighborhood and it's about how the kind of cats weave their way through the lives and homes of, of their owners and each owner is going through a bit of a difficult time and it's how the cat helps and I'm going to read you one review which calls it touching and hugely heartwarming goes to show how cats will save us all kill us all i think it's a
1: a typo how they will kill us all the cats will save
2: us all which um is probably a nice upbeat way to end this week's episode or this series episode of book club and now we've got a real life most amazing author coming very shortly jennifer egan
3: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.
1: In celebration of our Autumn Book Club on Postcards from Midlife today, we're going to be interviewing an author who has been described as the great American novelist. Jennifer Egan won the 2011 Pulitzer Prize for A Visit from the Goon Squad, a technically intricate and powerfully imaginative novel set in the music industry. Much of the book focused on the midlife memories of the significant characters, and Jennifer was 49 when it was published. Her critically acclaimed, best-selling and award-winning novels include Manhattan Beach, The Keep, The Invisible Circus, Look at Me, and Emerald City and other stories. And her latest novel, The Candy House, described as a sibling to a visit from the Goom Squad, was chosen as one of President Obama's favourite books of the year. A married mother of two boys, now aged 19 and 21, Jennifer writes all her first drafts in longhand. She lives in Brooklyn with her family and contributes to the New York Times Magazine and has won several awards for her journalism, where she has covered a breadth of subjects including mental health, Catholic seminaries, homeless children and drug addiction. Jennifer describes herself as an introvert. She says she rarely watches TV, yet her novels, like those of Margaret Atwood, often predict the political and technological future. She has an uncanny knack of knowing what's going to happen next, while simultaneously being able to capture the addictive nostalgia of the past. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Jennifer. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, we're very honoured to have you on the podcast. It's our book club day. We're huge fans of your work. But I think if we could start by talking about The Candy House and the plot of The Candy House, and then you will hopefully read a little bit for us. Um, can you sure. tell our listeners what the novel is about? Because it's a sort of part sci-fi. It's a little bit family saga. There's love story. There's all sorts in it. If you could just pre-see it, that would be great.
3: This is a kaleidoscopic book that has an ensemble quality. So every chapter is about a different person. And yet there is a larger story arc that kind of holds it together. So I guess you could say in a way that it's a little more like a a TV series than your kind of conventional novel. The major through line of all of these stories is an invention, a piece of technology that exists in the world as I've imagined it which is called own your unconscious. And it allows people to externalize the whole of their consciousnesses, all of their memories beginning at birth, And if they choose to, to share all or part of that consciousness to a collective, which they have to do if they want access to that collective themselves, if they want to view other people's memories and impressions. In many cases, people are using this device in the book to revisit experiences their parents had, let's say, or to solve mysteries. But in some chapters, we don't encounter the technology at all, but the kind of deep, Embedment that we have in people's minds in those chapters, the kind of stream of consciousness access to people's inner lives begins to feel during the book as if we are using the machine to gain that access. So the machine is sort of present as as an occasion for the book, even when it's not being used at all. And in fact, there are chapters that take place before it was invented. It's absolutely fascinating. It
1: is. I mean, I don't know how your mind held all that detail as well to link all of the chapters, to bring all the, all the kind of specifics back and the threads through them. I mean, it's a mighty piece of work. Could you read a bit for us, please? Sure. I'm going to just read
3: a little bit of this machine being used. And in this case, it's being used by a man who had a terrible trauma as a student, which was that he went swimming with a friend while an undergraduate at NYU. And for reasons that no one except he <laughs> fully knows, they had sort of a fight. They, they went into the East River. Drew, our narrator, was not looking at this guy. And the guy got swept away by a current and drowned. The inventor of the machine, own your unconscious, is another person who was present that morning, although left before the drowning. And his name is Bix. So in the little section I'm going to show you, Bix, the inventor of Own Your Unconscious, allows Drew, the, the second swimmer, to revisit that morning through Bix's memories, which he has externalized. Not long after Bix got back in touch, Sasha and I went to New York to visit him and Lizzie. The four of us watched Bix's memory of April 6, 1993 on separate headsets. Bix started rolling as we arrived at the East River at sunrise. Gentlemen, good morning, came Bix's voice, and there were Rob and me through Bix's eyes, two shaggy-haired 19-year-olds. Kids, was my first thought. As a parent, I saw Rob with aching clarity through the screen of his reddish stubble, his exhaustion and worry, an edgy eagerness to please that his irony couldn't conceal. At one point he lifted up his arms in a stretch and I caught the old football bulk, the ridges of pink scar tissue inside his wrists. And then there was the part I'd failed or maybe refused to see at the time a tenderness when Rob looked at me, a trusting admiration that was obviously love. I wished fleetingly that Bix hadn't silenced the thought and feeling portion of his consciousness. I wanted to know if he'd seen it. Would Bix have recognized the fumbling proposition Rob made to me some 20 minutes later as inevitable? But the real torture was watching my 19 year old self, cocky and full of hope, unaware that within the hour I would begin the after portion of my life, in which I would try endlessly and futilely to atone. Gentlemen, good morning. We watched the memory again and again. I was clutching Sasha's hand and I felt her weeping, but repetition dulled her response. And at some point she and Lizzie removed their headsets and took a bottle of wine up to the roof deck. I had to keep watching. There was something I needed to pinpoint in the lull, that last pause before Rob and I waved goodbye and began walking south along the river in the blinding metallic early morning sunlight. And then we were out of sight. Bix had turned and was walking toward the 6th Street overpass, heading to his apartment on East 7th Street. Wait, stop. I couldn't keep myself from exhorting him. Turn around. Call us back. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. I realized I was shouting only when Bix switched off my headset and lifted it gently away. Thank Thanks.
2: you. That is such a thought-provoking book. And I think the ability of your imagination to come up with own your unconscious. I mean, are you very into technology? Are you? It's almost like you're predicting the future in a way. You, it, where does that come from?
3: Well, I'm not into technology at all. And mm-hmm. I did no research whatsoever. I'm that person who waits until their phone <laughs> dies to get another one and like <laughs> needs very intensive help mm-hmm. to adjust to a new device. So I'm not technological. I think the my interest in technology really comes, I think, from my age, honestly. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like I've witnessed such a revolution in my lifetime. You know, I was born in 62. And by the time I got to university, I was unaware of any telecommunications developments other than call waiting. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> people feel like the person four years younger has grown up in a different technological reality than they did. So and, and that technology unto itself is not interesting to me, but the ways in which it interacts with our lives and, and weaves itself into our basic human desires to, to know other people and be known, to connect to people, to be close to people that we love. Technology is part of all of that. And so it becomes fascinating because of the ways in which it is part of human life.
1: I guess also, and what struck me about this book and and Goon Squad as well, is you have this amazing ability to to describe your characters looking back on things and feeling different things through new eyes. And actually physically in this book, you can look back on things through someone else's eyes, which is, it it resonated with me because I think that's what happens in midlife. (laughs) You start to have these awakenings about things that have happened and you suddenly see them from a totally different way than you saw them at the time. So most of your success, it sort of externally sort of started when you were kind of 40s onwards. How was that midlife journey for you? Were there awakenings? Did you start to sense this looking back that you describe so well in the book? It's very nostalgic, a lot of it.
3: The book deals with nostalgia, but I would make the distinction and say it in itself is not nostalgic. Because just as we witnessed in the little section I read, nostalgia is a kind of propaganda that we use to tell ourselves certain things about the past. And one of the things that's so uh, kind of bracing for people who use own your unconscious to revisit events from their lives is that filter is gone. They're just seeing it. And so that's really hard for Drew, because we have an idea that somehow if we could just go back, we could change the outcome. But of course, we can't do that, because it's already happened. Um, So As far as success goes, I mean, I'm very grateful that it came in midlife for me. I think that it's it can be distracting and it can create a lot of pressure in one's life and a feeling of being overvalued, all of which is problematic only. I mean, it's a a high class problem, as they say. But the, the way in which it is a problem potentially is that it can keep one from doing better work and growing. And my Single goal professionally is to keep getting better. If I can't do that, the whole thing grinds to a halt. So anything that distracts or disturbs that progress is is potentially a problem and an obstacle, and it, it can possibly undermine that growth. And I think that if I had had success as a younger person, I, I'm not sure I could have gone on to do the work that I've done. I truly mean that. Mm-hmm. I think okay. those pressures that the the feeling of expectations, of disappointing people, all of that is so profound for me. And I, even I, as a 40-something-year-old, really experienced that in the book after Goon Squad. Goon Squad was sort of my lucky book, where I made a big, um, a kind of exponential leap. Uh, And the next one was really hard, because I just felt like I've been overvalued, and now everyone's going to see that. And I think it was true. I actually think I was overvalued. Any Any great success resulting from a piece of art is probably too much. (laughs) You know, there's so much luck in why you even win prizes. It's pleasing the right group of people at the right time. I know that because I've judged prizes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's people who make these decisions. It's not God, although it kind of feels that way later from the outside. So... Um, So anyway, I'm grateful that I had enough perspective to first of all, just kind of blunder my way through the next book and then to You know to see that that there's a lot of randomness and chance to all this to appreciate the luck but not be crushed by it Mm -hmm. yeah in europe menopause discussion is huge right now but we kind
2: of get from people we know in the states that that's not necessarily the case where you guys are so we're just interested to know about the perception of midlife women in the states right now and maybe
3: how aware were you or not of you know the perimenopause I was taken so much by surprise. So I think it was really in my early 50s that I was sort of in there trying to write Manhattan Beach and also going through menopause, which for me brought on depression, which I had never had in my life. My older kid was a teenager and kind of an angry teenager. You know, one of those boys who was deeply intertwined with his mom and really needed to separate in that way so the combination of all of those things made me feel like i was just losing my mind and i felt like i no one had talked about it like i would i even talked to friends who had already gone through it because i was kind of late in approaching menopause and people said oh yeah it was absolutely horrible but no one had said it at the time so it was
1: really it is a strangely undiscussed topic and why is that do you think you do a lot of research you see a lot of patterns now how can a whole generation of women not told the generation behind them (laughs) what was going to happen you know my mother ended up having a hysterectomy
3: as a as a woman in her early 40s so her, nice. I think her progress was sort of different because yeah. of that. So she hadn't really talked to me about it. I don't really know. I think it has to have to do with some element of shame, some sense that as women who are heading out of our reproductive years, we need to kind of hide and that has got to be a really old feeling left over from a time when <laughs> our main job was to reproduce and be beautiful in all the ways that yeah. supposedly you can only be while still in your reproductive years. So I think that it's just one of these things that people tend to undergo solitarily, Um I was talking about it far and wide. And every time I did, people would say, oh, yeah, oh, my God, it was absolutely terrible. Which which antidepressant are you going on? I mean, it was so weird. It felt like everyone was an expert. But I had to ask to kind of find out about that. So it was it was a nightmare. I was a monster. I really was. I was so, I felt I was not myself. And it was was a relief to move through that.
1: Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? We hear this time and time again from almost every guest. It's just (laughs) quite powerful to keep hearing. I think things are changing. But if we go back to when you were a teenager, because you weren't going to originally be a writer and you took a gap year. And I think you'd worked as a model briefly to help pay for that and you worked in a coffee shop and um, the trip you went on was quite eventful wasn't it because you had panic attacks and then you ended up coming back to America and, and through that you, you learnt that probably writing was where it was for you.
3: Yeah, that gap year was really important. And the thing that made it, I think, so important was the degree of solitude that I experienced, which is unimaginable now. You know, we don't really have solitude like that in our world anymore. But I went from San Francisco to London. Actually, that was my first stop on Freddie Laker Airways. Some people may remember (laughs) that. (laughs) And with my backpack and I got a URL pass and I had Let's Go Europe, which was like the American. student's Bible to European travel, but actually it wasn't common for a young American who hadn't even been to university yet to do this. And it's a little bit hard for me to totally remember what moved me to do it exactly. It's interesting. I, I felt this absolute lust to know the world more you know i had been to mexico that's like a cheap vacation from california but that was the only place i really had been i just plunged into this world of like young travelers in youth hostels and i had amazing experiences and in fact one of the things that i think made me think about own your unconscious as an idea was that i often think about people i had really amazing times with from that trip and i don't know their full names I can't find okay. them. There's no way to track them down. I don't have enough information to even try to find them on social media. And so I've found myself thinking, I wish I, I wish someone could just see my memory of them and, and use facial recognition to find them. So it really, the whole concept of the machine in a way came about through a wish a wish to know what has become of people that I had meaningful times with as a really young person. Those experiences were great, but sometimes when I was on my own, this other thing would happen, which was, I called it the Terror, capital T. I had never heard of a panic attack. I'm not sure that the term had been coined. This was 1981. And I thought that they were drug flashbacks. (laughs) So that tells you something. (laughs) I'm now revealing. About your teenage years. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. San Francisco in the late 70s was, was, you know, a pretty druggy place. And there was a book called Go Ask Alice, which was a huge seller in America. It was about a young woman who gets hooked on drugs and loses her mind and ends up, you know, I think in an insane asylum. And it turned out to be completely apocryphal. It was like written by, I think, a you know, a woman who wanted kids not to take drugs. <laughs> um, but anyway, it really worked. And I thought, oh my God, I'm Alice. I'm losing my mind. I'm gonna end up in institutions. And I actually believed that even through my first year of uni- university, I still thought, okay, I'm doing my best to keep this going, but I think ultimately I'm not going to be able to sustain it. And I'll be remembering this from an institution. I actually thought that that's how virulent those panic attacks were. I thought I'm my brain is broken and it can't be fixed. And this was all, you know, no one ever got medication of any sort for any of that. And I never did at all. So those times were really hard. But what I discovered, whether I was having good times or bad, was that writing somehow completed the circle of the experience it was just an essential element and it made all of life more vivid and real for me more complete and so i returned from this somewhat you know catastrophic trip Um, (laughs) feeling like I definitely know I need to write and I probably can't live a mainstream life and I really believe that but luckily the writing part really stuck.
2: So writing does help with, with kind of managing mental health obviously as you talked about just now your panic attacks when you were older going through hormonal changes but you've also had some family issues haven't you has writing helped you get through the death of your brother Graham who suffered from schizophrenia and also your father as an alcoholic and was the writing the thing that helped with
3: that? I don't know if the writing really helped that much with that. I mean, it's a terrible irony that, you know, I thought I would spend my life in institutions. Mm -hmm. And in fact, my brother, who at that point appeared to be fine because schizophrenia's onset is, you know, early 20s. uh, He was six and a half years younger than I. So he was still a kid, really, when I was going through all that. He ended up actually having the life that I was Mm -hmm. terrified to have. It's sort of unbelievable to me, actually, how unfair that was, because he was such a golden boy, an incredible athlete, so charming and charismatic, but he struggled unbelievably and finally ended his life in 2016. You know, he was the one who struggled. the, The pain was his and ours only to the degree that we were unable to help him and really loved him. I find myself writing about him now, and that is very helpful to just try to remember or gather together, again, thinking a little bit about the machine, trying to sort of gather together and take ownership of every memory I have of him from our whole lives. So it's a lot of material. That is helpful. First of all, it just storytelling gives our lives meaning. Literally, <laughs> that's what storytelling is. You know, that's why we need interpreters to handle data, because data is just raw information and interpretation is what turns it into a narrative that can be helpful. So we are storytellers, we humans, and telling the story of his life is helpful because it just makes it feel like it has a structure. It's not that it justifies it. I, In no way do I think like anything happens for a reason. Are you kidding me? No, I find those narratives very self-serving. What happened to him had no reason. It was only bad. And yet telling the story of it is helpful. To me, it doesn't help him, unfortunately. And so yes, that is a really helpful thing to do. But in the moment, it was not helpful. He was a very helpful person to talk to about writing and storytelling. There are limits to what writing can do in the moment in confronting real injustice and tragedy.
1: So you've been married for a long time to David, He's a theatre director. Tell us about him. How did you meet? And how long have you been together? And what makes you happy? happily married. I'm saying that. I don't know. I don't know the details. I'm assuming that. You look very happy.
3: I am happy. We are happy.
1: So we met
3: in England, actually. We both had scholarships to study at Cambridge. I saw a play that he had directed actually before I even knew him. He did a production of The Maids, which was fantastic. We had actually friends in common from the States and that was sort of how we even knew of each other's existence. What I sometimes think is that we could easily have gone through with a series of other people, the many phases that we went through with each other. But somehow, even as we did go through all those phases of, you know, moving back to the States, he started out in Massachusetts, I was in New York, and then sort of being like young people together in the East Village, the 7th Street apartment that I write about a lot in the Candy House was actually our apartment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we lived at 97 and a half East 7th Street. <laughs> and it was just a really fun time to be in that neighborhood. And, you know, I think what one thing that is great about what he does is that it's so collaborative. It's so people-saturated, and it's a great counterpoint to the solitude of what I do. We used to have cast parties in this apartment, which was so small that you couldn't even walk across the room. It was just people from wall to wall. So that we've just, you know, kind of gone through these different phases And then, you know, ultimately having kids pretty late and then moving to Brooklyn and it's, it's just remained really fun and funny. It feels like the this adventure of being alive is more fun if we're together. And that's what I think has held us together.
2: And you have two sons together who are sort of late teens, early 20s. Do, do
3: they read your work? Do they engage? They've never in... read it. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I don't blame them. I, I'm not in a big hurry for them to read it. I can't say why. It's interesting. One thing that The, the Candy House is really concerned with, actually, is the sort of structural barrier between parents and children, the way in which we can't know our parents, there's no way to know them as their peers know them. There's a kind of mythological quality that parents acquire when we're kids that they'll never shake. And I, I, you know, growing up in San Francisco in the 70s, I saw a lot of parents who wanted to get rid of that barrier. And to some degree, this was true of my stepfather, you know, just wanted to be friends. But Mm -hmm. you can't ever do that, really, in my opinion. And I'm not even sure it makes sense to try. So one thing that people do with, with the machine in the candy house is use it to kind of know their parents in that way. And I guess what I feel with my kids is that if they read my books the way everyone else, anyone else can read them, it feels like they will know me in a way that they don't now. <laughs> and I'm not in a big hurry for that. At That being said, they probably will eventually, yeah. and that's totally fine. I feel like my career has always been very secondary to them, and that's exactly as I have wanted it. I think that being a kid is the one time in your life when it, it, it can really just be about you. And I had a very tumultuous childhood, and it was my pleasure to create a very stable kind of conventional childhood for them and to just throw myself into that fully, which I enjoyed so much. I mean, obviously I was working the whole time and even traveling and publishing books, but it always felt like a relief to me to leave all of that behind when I went to pick them up at school or just walked into the house and they came running along It was such a joy to forget about all the rest of it and just do that
1: fully. You once said that, you know, really when they got home from school, the writing had to kind of stop. Do you get up really early? I I mean, first of all, you know, I I definitely had babysitters, so I wasn't
3: with them always every single day after school. I always felt like I was getting nothing done. That was my strong feeling at all times, but I think I was always doing a little more than I thought. I did not get up earlier than, I got up early and made breakfast and stuff. I was not ever working before they went to school. It's a wonderful idea. And I'm sure some really disciplined (laughs) people do that, but I never managed it. And in fact, now that they're both in college, having the mornings back to myself is actually really great because that's always how I did work. And then I, I often would find that by the time I had taken people to school, made breakfast, taken people to school, gotten everyone organized, It felt like I had strayed a really long way from that internal (laughs) dream world, especially because I don't write about myself or my life. So there's a big division between my imaginary world and my real world. But that's one reason that one was always such a great antidote to the other. I remember there was a time when I had sent my novel, The Keep, to the editor that I had been working with. It was just the, the early part of it. She really didn't respond to it and basically said, I think you should like, stop working on this and i was so crushed and i thought i it's over like i i'm so into this project but obviously it's terrible i felt almost like i could i was almost paralyzed with unhappiness and then the kids came scrambling in they were still little then and i ran downstairs and was like making them a snack and i realized about 30 minutes later that i had completely forgotten about this disappointment. And it turned out that it was time for me to stop working with that editor. I found a different editor. The book came out. It all worked out. But just the joy of having having this domestic life to just luxuriate in was such a joy. They're away at college now, are they, Jennifer? So they your are yeah. empty nest. How are you adapting to that? Well, they, the youngest one went to college at the beginning of last fall. So it's been a year. It was really hard at first. I kept feeling like I didn't know what a successful day was. Mm-hmm. That was the hard. I kept thinking, well, what am I supposed to be doing? Because even though I was doing lots of things, the bottom line of what I was doing was always like you know, taking care of them on some mm-hmm. level. Not that they wanted a lot of my, you know, yeah. uh hovering when they were teenagers, but you know, making sure everything was running smoothly for them. So without them there, I felt a, a real void of structure but I will say I got over that, you know, not, it didn't take that long. (laughs) Um, I mean, and, and, you know, first of all, they're not gone. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They're very present. um, And they were both home this past summer. And second of all, you know, I do find myself thinking about my brother because that was a person who couldn't move successfully into that adult stage, Mm -hmm. couldn't fully achieve independence and that is so hard. And so I feel such joy in seeing the ways in which they're able to do that, that they are becoming more responsible, that they they can organize their lives and accomplish things and i see them like hitting these milestones that he couldn't hit it's just wonderful it's a struggle to to adapt to that empty nest but i feel like my job is to embrace it continue to support them focus on getting more work done like make my own life worthwhile if i mm-hmm. if i'm sitting here feeling a lack of their presence that's really on me mm-hmm. and i and and so i feel like that's that's an occasion for me to look hard at what i'm trying to do and figure out how to use that time productively for myself and the world around me. Now,
1: you're one of the few women to win a Pulitzer. Very impressive. And you do a lot of journalism as well. So you've, you've been in a newsroom. You know how that all works. I'm guessing you must have encountered some issues of sexism or misogyny over the years. What have you experienced? And what do you think is changing? Is it changing?
3: I think things are changing here a lot. As a journalist, I think of myself as really a fiction writer first and a journalist second. And in a way, I sort of really haven't been in a newsroom exactly because the art- kinds of articles that I've done are long research pieces. Yeah. And my mentor, the person who sort of gave me that career, is a man. So I feel like actually I was lifted up by him and given a lot of freedom with very few qualifications at the beginning. The realm of fiction, things have changed so radically here. It's almost unbelievable. I mean, when I started, it was not at all unusual for every finalist for a prize to be a white man. Everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> now, idea. There mm-hmm. would be an absolute outcry over that. And that outcry would not just be on behalf of women, but also people of color, writers of color. So there's been a real, a sort of scattering oh. now of focus in the writing world. The long list for the National Book Award in America. And the long list for the Andrew Carnegie Fiction Prize had not a single book in common. <laughs> wow. And that is sort of amazing. Like that that really was not how it was before. I mean, witness the fact that I won the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Pulitzer and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize in one year. That would never happen now. So I think things have changed a lot in the sense that people look carefully at those lists and make sure that they're not just rewarding white men. At the beginning, it felt to me like I I could never win anything. I definitely remember encountering reviews early on, especially of my novel Look at Me, which was extremely ambitious, that had a little bit of a sort of, well, that was a nice try quality to them. But I I think where I experienced sexism most, to be honest, was the internalized sexism in me Mm -hmm. that said, you don't have a right to tell this ambitious story. You are not qualified to do it. And I think that's where sexism and racism are the most insidious. The way that we internalize it and it stops us from doing things that we might otherwise do and might want to do. Honestly, I've clearly done very well. (laughs) I've managed to thread the needle. I'm sure being white is a big part of that because at the time when I was winning these awards, there was a focus on rewarding women, but not yet so much people of color. I have nothing to complain about, Mm -hmm. but I certainly have enjoyed watching the field widen and diversify because I just think it's going to result in better writing, which is my fixation. You know, we are up against an attention economy in which the smartest people in the world are devoting their careers to keeping us from putting our phones down and they're very good at it. All everything on our phones is addictive. It's so hard to stop. And you know, this is we're trying to write books and and create a real uh, gravitational pull away from all that. So we need the best and the brightest doing this work and the more diversification there is, the better shot we have of keeping fiction alive as a cultural force.
2: Yes. And so what's what's next for you, Jennifer, work-wise? We know that you turned
3: 60 recently. Congratulations. How did that feel? And what are you focusing on now? It felt great. I mean, I feel lucky enough to be healthy as far as I know. I have loved many who didn't make it to 60 (laughs) and i feel grateful you know i keep saying i want to live to 120 um like the italian lady who had never been to the doctor (laughs) but i don't know i don't want to be a wreck but i i want to be productive for as long as possible and i'm uh, because i had my kids late i really feel a responsibility to stay alive and perky so that I can be a presence in my grandkids' lives and all of that. I'm working on a lot of things. I'm back to journalism. I'm writing about homelessness in New York, which is a massive problem and a very ruling topic so that's been definitely taking some of my time i'm sort of working on two books right now but one of them will definitely have to you know capture all of my focus soon i love genre so one is in the detective genre which mm-hmm. is one that i've always adored and i dabbled with it in look at me which is kind of a has a detective and has kind of a noir feeling and my novel Manhattan Beach also is sort of a noirish story. Um, but this time I'm really going for it. Um, <laughs> the second one involves nineteenth century New York. So, two projects that I'm, I'm, you know, very excited about visiting imaginatively, have no idea if they'll work out because I never do, but at least I'm engrossed. We can't let you go without a book
1: recommendation. Is there a book that's meant, a fiction or otherwise, a lot to you in your life that you'd like our listeners to read? If I have to pick one, which is just
3: impossible, yeah. <laughs> the one that always pops into my head is The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton. For many reasons. Um, It it very much deals with women and power or lack thereof. Uh, It was published in 1901. So it has that real turn-of-the-century quality. It's She's sort of writing about the Gilded Age at the end of the 19th century, but but things are beginning to change. Women are, for example, getting divorced. There are divorcees in the book. It's such a, an indictment of a world in which women are given so few choices. It's a tragedy in the real world classical sense it's it is it follows the rules of greek tragedy but it's also very satirical it's so funny and it succeeds beautifully on the level of the sentence the paragraph the chapter and the whole, which packs an oh such a wallop that it makes me cry every time I read it. And I don't really cry easily when I'm reading. I just cannot recommend it highly enough. And
1: it's just fun. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you so much, Jennifer Egan, for coming onto our podcast and all that lovely knowledge and just learning about you and how you think. I think our listeners will absolutely love it. Thank you.
3: Well, it's been a total joy. Thank you for having me. Bum,
1: bum, bum. <laughs> Here we are. Nostalgia Noodle. Oh, Needs a jingle really. It's does, got to, somebody's yes. got to stop shall me I, doing shall it. Shall I
2: write a song? Shall I write a little song? How can we
1: go from Jennifer Egan. <laughs> I
2: know. We're going back to balls again after <laughs> Jennifer Egan? starting with football and all that madness um i don't know why um it's not really balls it's round things space hoppers do you remember those i do with the little horns that you would hold little horns and do you know what's only occurred to me 55 years on or so is what that little face was you know the little face on the front of the orange space hopper do you do you know what animal? Uh, honestly, was? what
1: goes on in your mind?
2: I know, is I know. An absolute
1: <laughs> mystery. I think we should get a forensic psychiatrist to go in there and try and find out what's oh, happening. Dear. What is the little face? Well, Explain you don't know me. either,
2: do you? It's a kangaroo. I never knew that. How did I you know, know that? that? No, I didn't. But it somewhere. You know how these things pop up somewhere somehow. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, found that out this week. Kangaroo. Did you, did you have a space offer? Do you know what? We didn't. I think we were probably the only house in the whole world not to have one. Did you have
1: one? No, but I oh. had them for the children because because oh, yes. <laughs> we were deprived. So our children we were had to deprived. Have them. So we had to, to absolutely mm. give them everything. Obviously, mm. not spoil them rotten. And we had a couple actually because I had too many children, obviously, and they used to make this terrible. Bonking noise on the wooden floor above the kitchen, and sometimes oh. when I'd be doing something, I'd I'd get so angry. And you know, you do that thing where you shout upstairs, "Stop it!" And you've you've done it about twenty yes. times. We had an expensive space hopper, and we had a very cheap one that was from Tiger or something. like Yes, that, so it was quite thin. So I shouted, "Stop it!" Up the stairs for the nine millionth time. Must have been perimenopausal. Trish. Yes, very likely. Nobody stopped it. Didn't care about mum. Let don't bother with her. Not listening to her. So I took the bread knife. And
2: oh, this is sounding dangerous!
1: And I said, "Get off that thing! I've told you three times!" And they didn't. They carried on bouncing. So mm. I just took and stabbed it with a bread knife, and it <laughs> did it pop. But the well, just pop. sort of i couldn't have done the other slithering. one i'd have had to savagely attack him yes with a off, with a sharper you know, knife police, yes than a bread That's knife <laughs> and, and, well,
2: did they just do they just stand there speechless the children were they, they just, just mouths open that speechless. shut them up didn't it that yeah, like them
1: up. the time they cut all the um tassels of the special rug that oh yes given for my wedding anniversary they just <laughs> stood there speechless as if it was nothing to do with them <laughs> And why were they being asked by oh. this crazy woman holding a bread knife about this bouncy ball thing? Oh well. So parenting just... high,
2: Trish. Yes, it's murderous, dark thoughts, footballs, <laughs> all sorts going on today. I, d- I don't know. I don't know how we do it. No
1: that brings us to the end of this week's postcards from midlife new episodes are available to listen to every sunday on your podcast provider and we would really appreciate it if you can make sure to download your episodes because they count on our listener numbers and please do rate and review us too that would be
2: marvellous it would and another please please tell your friends about us because we want as many women as possible to join in the midlife conversation which is what our private facebook group is
1: all about so if you're not a member yet do come on over and join in the chat you can use it to post any feedback on the topics we discuss as well as suggestions for other things you'd like to hear talked about or celebrities and experts you would like us to interview or you can email us at hello at postcards from midlife.com or pop a little message